Well, hey, good morning, Bridgeway. How are we? We good? It is great to see you. My name's Brian. If we haven't met, we are kicking off a brand new series this morning, and I am excited to dig into it with you. So a quick story by way of introduction. Uh, back in 2002, a journalist named Diane Cucci published a landmark article in the Harvard Business Review. And in that article, she, she told a story about a colleague of hers from earlier in her career named Klaus. They had worked together at a magazine. And at the time that they worked together, Klaus was in his mid-50s, and he was known for being the quintessential newsman, and he had a great reputation for cranking out high-quality stories at an amazing clip. He was just the right mix of he was curious, but a little bit cynical, and he was funny, and had a good sense of humor, and was just a great colleague. Everybody loved Klaus. He was a great person to work with and a great reporter. But for those that knew him well, they knew that Klaus wasn't just a great reporter. He was also a survivor. He had suffered incredible professional setbacks. In fact, the magazine that he worked at had been sold three times during the course of his career. And that may not sound like a big deal, but with each sale, that meant he lost his colleagues and his best friends and had to start fresh. His personal life was worse. He, had, he suffered all sorts of tragedy. Two of his children succumbed to incurable illnesses, and a third was killed in a traffic accident. And yet there he was, in his mid-50s, having put in a lot of years in his career, still working hard, still cranking out great stories, still walking around the newsroom, still mentoring young reporters, still talking about novels that he was writing, still looking forward to the future with hope and optimism and expectation. And after telling Klaus's story, Kuchi asks this very poignant question. Why do some people suffer setbacks and do not falter? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do some people suffer setbacks and do not falter? To put differently, why is it that two people can have sort of somewhat similar negative experiences? And one person is maybe bummed out for a little while, but then they're able to recover and bounce back and continue on with their life, whereas one other person begins to spiral and they never seem to recover. See, these sorts of questions relate to an idea, this idea of resilience. And in fact, Cucci's article is called How Resilience Works. And in the article, she calls resilience one of the great puzzles of human nature. Resilience is the ability to bounce back after a setback, to press through in the face of adversity, or, or to put differently, a resilient object is an object that when it is crushed down can regain its form. That's resilience. I, I, I find the definition given by the American Psychological Association to be helpful. They say resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, or workplace and financial stressors. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. And listen, here are some things that, that I know about you even if I don't know you. I know that you have had difficult experiences in your life. Whoa, how did he know? <laughs> I also know that you will have difficult experiences in your future. I know, now I'm just like reading your mail. How do I do it, right? 
But I also know that you do not want to let those experiences crush you, right? You want to be able to bounce back from those experiences. I've talked to a lot of people in my life as a pastor. I've never had somebody come to me and say, Pastor, you got to help me. I, my, one of my goals is I want to become the sort of person who just absolutely melts in the face of any sort of setback or trial. Nobody says that. But too often we end up living that way, don't we? But we want to be resilient people. I, I want to be resilient. I want my kids to be resilient. I want you all to be resilient. I want us to be a resilient church. I want us to be people who know how to bounce back from tough times. More than that, I believe God has built us to be resilient. So, something you should know about me is that I really, really like to eat burritos. And in order to minimize the negative effects of my burrito eating, I am also a runner. And I've been running for a long time, and about five years ago, I'm out for a run, it's late in the evening, and I'm mid-stride, and as I'm mid-stride, I spot every runner's worst nightmare, a small pine cone, and I know my foot is aiming right for it. Not good. My foot hits the pine cone, does the little twisty thing, and for the next two, few steps, I go, oh boy, that was a close one. And then I realize, no, that was not a close one. <laughs> I need to stop immediately. And it was late at night, my, my wife's home and my kids are asleep, so she can't come get me. I had to call my dad, it was a whole thing, right? And I just figured, okay, I'll take a few days off and then I'll be okay. Well, days turned into weeks and eventually I go to the doctor, I get, you know, pictures taken, the whole thing, go to physical therapy, weeks turn into months, I'm wearing a boot for two or three months, and this thing just never got better. And here I am now, five years later, and my right ankle is still not the same, but here's what's happened. I've learned that my ankle gets stiff and it gets sore. But I know that if I push through it, I'm going to be okay. This happens every time I run. It happened this morning. If you watch me in the first 100 yards as I leave my driveway, you'd be like, that is not a person who should be running. <laughs> he is definitely going to fall over very soon, right? And it doesn't feel good. It's very uncomfortable. But what have I learned? I've learned that I'm not at risk of further injury, that I can push through it, and I'm going to be fine. I mean, it's still running, so it's not going to be pleasant, but it's not going to hurt, right? See, I want us to be those types of people who can push through the difficulty. I mean, and sure, you could say, well, wait a second. If you actually could cause injury, then you'd want to stop. Yeah, resilience doesn't mean we press forward in the face of everything, but it means we overcome obstacles. Or to give you an example from a hobby of mine that I actually like, I coach my kids' soccer team. And early this year, I don't know, just one of our first couple of practices, just this idea came to my mind, and it's become sort of this like mantra for our team at the start of every practice. At the start of every practice, we get the kids together, check in, hey, how, how everyone's, how's everyone doing? And I say the exact same thing to them. I say, all right, guys, today we're going to work hard, and we're going to work hard for two reasons. Number one, you play the way that you practice. So you cannot expect to just have kind of mess around during practice and then play well on Saturdays. And I said, number two, when you work hard at something, you give yourself the best chance to be successful. And here we are eight, nine weeks into the season, and the kids practically have these statements memorized. They repeat them back to me. They're probably sick of hearing them, but I repeat them anyway, because I hope that long after they've forgotten the scores of all our games, they remember those two points, especially that when you work hard at something, you give yourself the best chance to be successful. And I told them the other day, I said, as we started practice, I said, guys, let me ask you something. I said, is winning soccer, they're 10 years old, is winning soccer games really, like, really, really important? <laughs> and of course, they all go, yeah! <laughs> and listen, I'm a competitive guy. I love to win and I hate to lose. But I, I said to them, actually, guys, you know what? It, like, I want to win. But it's actually not that important. Like at the end of the day, 
Like, we want to play hard, we want to do our best, but it's not that important. But I asked them this, I said, hey, is it really important to, to work hard and do your best in school? And they're, like, less enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it really important to, to be a good son to your, your parents and a good brother to your siblings to work, to work hard at that? Yeah. Do you think it's really important? I'm an adult. The rest of the coaches were adults. Is it important to work hard at your job and, and do the best you can? Yeah. And I said, so why do we work hard on the, the soccer field? Why do we press through in the face of adversity? Because there are other things you're going to do in your life that are more important. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to train these young people in resilience, right? To work hard at things that are just sort of hobbies so you can work hard at things that matter. And it seems like talk of resilience is everywhere in our world today. I, I do a lot of reading about children's ministry and youth ministry because I, I work with those departments here at the church. And, and there's all this talk about building resilient disciples. How do we build young people that can follow Jesus into adulthood? And that's obviously super important. And it seems like every time I, I go on the internet, I'm, I'm finding articles, three things that resilient people do, three things resilient people don't do. How to be resilient on Thursdays. And like, you know, it's the internet. There's all sorts of stuff out there. And then even, and I should preface this by saying, I am what you would call a playoff baseball fan, really more like a playoff baseball observer, meaning I only pay attention during the playoffs. But I'm on the San Francisco Giants email list from going to a game a couple of years ago, and I opened up an email from them the other day, and what's their big theme for the 2021 postseason? Resilient, right? And they have a chance to practice resilience tomorrow after yesterday's result. But anyway... <laughs> Resilience is everywhere. There's lots of talk about it. And for good reason. For good reason. I probably don't need to sell you on the benefits of resilience, but they are very real. The Harvard Medical School says that resilience is associated with longevity, with lower rates of depression, and with greater satisfaction in life. So all that you'll get from developing resilience is you'll be more likely to live longer, less likely to be depressed, and more likely to be satisfied with your life. Other than that, it's not that great. <laughs> now, resilience isn't developed by accident. Like most skills worth having, it takes some work on our part, right? And there's certainly plenty in our, in our world that can chip away at our sense of resilience. But the good news is, is that there's evidence that resilience is a skill to be learned. Different ones of us might be more naturally resilient than others. But that is a muscle that you and I can build, and I believe that it is a muscle that our Heavenly Father who loves us desires for us to build. To, to go back to Coochie's article one more time, she said that she studied all sorts of different theories of resilience. And all of these different theories showed that resilient people tend to have three things in common. Number one, that they have a firm grasp on reality. Uh, to put it in her words, they have a staunch acceptance of reality. And then number two, they have a deep belief, often buttressed by strongly held values, that life is meaningful. And then number three, they have an uncanny ability to improvise. So staunch acceptance of reality, a belief that life is meaningful, and an uncanny ability to improvise. And because all of that is true, I believe that if you are a follower of Jesus in this room today, that you are uniquely situated to become a person of resilience. In fact, let's just take a minute, go through all of those qualities and filter them through the lens of our faith. So first, a staunch acceptance of reality. I think, let's just be honest here, I think there are a lot of reasons why a lot of us struggle to truly accept reality. Sometimes reality is scary. So sometimes reality doesn't paint us or people we love 
in, in a positive light. Or there are certainly segments of our society where just being willing to tell the objective truth will get you branded as disloyal or you'll be called names or something like that. But as followers of Jesus, we can be people with a radical commitment to truth-telling. We do not need to be afraid of the truth because God's grace is sufficient for us, right? We do not need to be afraid of the truth because God's grace is sufficient for us. We need not live in denial because, please hear me on this, God does not live in the pretend. God lives in the real, okay? God does not live in the pretend. God lives in the real, right? He is with us in our current reality. So we do not need to give in to cynical pessimism or naive optimism. Rather, we can live with a sense of spirit-led optimistic realism. And if you've never heard of that before, it's because I just made it up. But spirit-led optimistic realism. We can face reality knowing that the Holy Spirit is present and at work. And research suggests that most of us, when we slip into denial or we just aren't willing to accept reality, we, we do that as a coping mechanism, don't we? And when it comes, but, 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 but facing reality without, drink, without sort of blinking, facing reality and just accepting it as it is, that can be difficult and draining work. But we have the spirit of the living God with us so we can do it. When we continue to engage deception, it keeps us trapped, but the truth sets us free. Isn't that, isn't that right? So second, we have a deep belief buttressed by strongly held values that life is meaningful. Like, yes, isn't that true? <laughs> isn't that true? When, when it comes to human beings, we don't believe in accidents. We believe that life is precious from, from womb to tomb. We believe that every person is made in the image of God. We, we believe, as the psalmist says, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We, we believe, as the, the forefathers of our faith said in the Westminster Confession, what is the cheap end of human beings to know God and to enjoy him forever? See, we are not left like so many scrambling to find meaning in this life. Meaning in this life is given to us by God. It is given to us by God. And some of the greatest stories of resilience in human history are from people who had a staunch acceptance of reality and then believed that life is meaningful. I think about Viktor Frankl and his amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning, written after he survived the horrors of living in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And in that book, he talks about how he was able to find meaning. And he says that we must never forget that we may find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation. And he talks about in the book about how part of how he survived wasn't by being just super optimistic all the time, but it was by choosing to find meaning in a seemingly hopeless situation. And we can do that because God is with us. And then third, the ability to improvise or sort of to make do with what we've got. If we believe God is present and at work, that means we can remain creative and open-minded and prepared to face whatever challenges come our way with a, with a mix of grit and enthusiasm and spirit-led, realistic, or excuse me, optimistic realism. So for the next nine weeks, we're going to do some resilience training together so that we can be resilient people for the glory of God. I believe this from the core of my being, that in, this, in the world we are living in, resilience is not a luxury, it is a necessity. It is a necessity. 
And our guide for our training is going to be one of Jesus' best friends, the Apostle Peter. We're going to be studying the book of 1 Peter, which is found near the end of your Bible and was written just a few short decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to be going through the book line by line. So if the sermon up to this point has felt more like a low-quality TED Talk, don't worry. We're going to open up the scriptures and get into God's word, and that's what we're going to be doing the rest of the series. So actually, if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I want to invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, you'll want to look for page 1014. 1014. 1 Peter is an amazing book. It's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. A hundred years ago when I was in college and I was the chaplain for my fraternity, I got to choose whatever I wanted to, to, to lead us through for a Bible study, and I chose the book of 1 Peter because it's just so full of practical insight and, and wisdom. The book is written, of course, by Peter, and it's written to a mix of Jews and Gentiles living in five different provinces in Asia Minor. These people were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a, in a pre-Christian world. In other words, a world where Christianity was not a dominant social influence. And as we come to this letter nearly 2,000 years after it was written, we're kind of living on the other side of the coin. Most people who study sort of sociology and religion say that the Western world, North America and Europe, is, is what we would call post-Christian. Meaning that, meaning that the, the influence from a society-wide society level of Christianity is waning. And that is not entirely a bad thing, but it is not entirely a good thing. But what it means is that we're left asking the question, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of a world where Christianity's influence is waning? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world where identifying as a Christian doesn't carry a social benefit, but indeed it might carry a social cost? And 1 Peter addresses questions of Christian identity and how to engage a hostile world while keeping your character intact. There's all sorts of references to persevering under trials. It talks about the goodness and holiness of God and how to live in response. And it's, it's written to a group of people who they weren't facing government-level persecution, but there was all sorts of social tension that they were facing. Again, Christianity was not a popular worldview at that time. They faced all sorts of trials and criticism. So as we continue to find our way in a post-Christian world, now 2,000 years, years later and on the other side of the world, I believe there is no shortage of divinely inspired wisdom for us to find in this letter. So, Nine-part series through the book of 1 Peter. The series is called Resilient. And as we progress through the series, we, want, we hope you'll be here on the, on the weekends, but we also want to be able to equip you during the week. So one thing we're doing is you can text the word Peter to, uh, the number's going to be up on the screen here, but it's 855-475-8095. And what we're going to do is on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we'll text you some scripture passages to read, some quotes about resilience, some quotes about kind of the topic we talked about that weekend, maybe some links to articles, just different resources resources so that you can be thinking about resilience and growing in your resilience here even during the week. We did something like this during our series through the book of Daniel this summer and had almost a thousand people participating. So it'd be really awesome to, to see that again. So I would invite you to go ahead and text Peter to that number. So here we go. We've got 12 verses to look at today. We're going to spend more time at the beginning of the passage than the end. The message is called Resilient Hope. And before we get into the scripture, I want to give you the fill in the blank. We can be people with resilient hope because God is with us in the struggle. That's your fill in. God is with us 
in the struggle. We can have hope, a confident expectation in a bright future because God is with us in the struggle. So here we go, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pause. Peter identifies himself as an apostle. This is similar to a law enforcement officer presenting their badge, right? He's essentially showing his credentials. In the first century church, an apostle was somebody who had authority to bear authentic testimony to the life and significance of Jesus Christ. It's a unique level of spiritual authority. And he calls his recipients elect exiles and names these five provinces, provinces that would have covered 129,000 square miles. So this was a letter meant to circulate to a wide audience. And, and the, the provinces are listed in the order that a mail carrier might stop at them after coming off of a ship in the Black Sea. Some of these provinces are large cities. Some of them were more rural spaces. It's a diverse group of people. And then they're diverse ethnically with Jews and Gentiles. And this phrase, elect exiles, is what Peter calls them, is, noticeable, is, is notable. That they are elect, meaning they have been called by God. And they are exiles in a sense that where they are living is not their true home. And that is true for us today. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you are, you are elect. You have been called into the family of God. And that you're an exile. We're exiles, right? We are living on earth. But our true home is in heaven, right? I think it's pretty interesting to note that around this time in kind of Roman history, their emperor was a man named Emperor Claudius, and he was engaging in a policy called urbanization through colonization. And that meant what he would do is he would take different people who were living in Rome, and he would send them out to live in different places to establish Roman colonies. And when you're the emperor, you don't take volunteers, right? You just say, hey, I know your home is in Rome, but Cappadocia is lovely. That's where you'll be living now. So these people that are living in these different provinces, they weren't there by choice. They are exiles, it even says in the scripture, exiles of the dispersion. They had been dispersed. And scholars think what Peter is doing here is he is drawing on their sort of life situation, that they are exiles living in colonies that are not their home, to draw attention to their spiritual situation, to say, you know how you don't feel like you're living at home right now? Remember that earth is not your home either. This is not your true home. You're elect exiles. We, we are elect exiles chosen by God, and God is with us in the struggle. And we're living here on earth, but this is not our home. And then verse 2, we see the basis for this identification. By, on what basis can we be called elect exiles? It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There are some big theological words right there in verse 2. This is a beautiful verse. So we are called elect exiles by the foreknowledge of God meaning it happened by the preordained plan of God. It means God had a plan from the foundation of the world to call a community of people to himself. This is not an accident. God didn't just simply set the world in motion and say, well, we'll see what happened. That God's plan from the beginning was to call a community of people to himself, and we're part of that here today. And then it says, sanctifying us 
with the Spirit. To, to sanctify is to make holy, and it is the Holy Spirit. But let me be clear on this. It is not our own effort. It is ultimately the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts to sanctify us, to make us holy. Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 1 that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, the Holy Spirit transfers us from dark to light. Or to, to, to borrow and paraphrase language from Ezekiel chapter 36, God, God removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. You, you want reason for hope. You, you want reason for resilient hope. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart. You are being formed and shaped by the Spirit of God, and he finishes what he starts. Amen? Amen. And this sanctification is demonstrated by obedience to Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about this this week. Obedience is not a fun word, is it? Like, nobody really likes obedience. Like, nobody lists on their list of, like, favorite hobbies. Like, I like hiking and fishing and just being obedient. No, you don't right? Like, we might be obedient because we have to, or we might be obedient because we don't want to rock the boat, or maybe we're rule followers by nature, but I don't know what got you up this morning, but like, it was not a desire to be obedient to somebody else, right? Like, nobody's really fired up about obedience. Why is that? I think we bristle at the thought of obedience for two primary reasons, and there are certainly others, but two big ones. Number one, nearly all of us, let's just be honest here, nearly all of us have a negative experience with required obedience, don't we? Like maybe it was with a parent or a boss or a teacher or a principal or, 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 or a pastor or, or like a, a government official or something. Nearly all of us have been in a position where we had to be obedient to someone and we really didn't like it, right? We really didn't like it. Maybe they were lazy, maybe they made us follow dumb rules, maybe they were hypocritical, whatever the case may be. We've had an experience, maybe you're living in one right now, where you're stuck being obedient against your will and you don't like it. So, so we're nervous about obedience because of that. And then number two, we just, in the Western world, we have been so baked in the concept of radical individualism that most of us, if we're just brutally honest, we just, we're injected with truth serum and just have to say the, our honest truth. Most of us, if we're really honest, we think we're be we know better than anyone else when it comes to running our lives. We think we know better than anyone else when it comes to running our lives. And more than that, I think if we're honest, we get a sense of identity from our personal autonomy. Right? We derive a sense of identity from our personal autonomy. I'm the boss of me. I call the shots. I make the decisions. We like that feeling, don't we? We like that feeling. But what about obedience to somebody who knows us better than we know ourselves? What about obedience to somebody who knows how life works best, better than we could ever hope to? And what if personal autonomy is not all it's cracked up to be? I mean, come on, if I'm my own highest authority, where do I look to when I fail? That gets real lonely real quick, doesn't it? See, obedience is only a problem if our leaders aren't competent, Obedience to a leader that is, who is radically competent and radically committed to our good is a gift. And Jesus is that kind of leader. 
He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely full of grace. And listen, we talk about obedience in church, and we get so, like, judgmental and defensive and trying to, like, police each other's obedience, like, involuntarily, and just, it becomes messy. And I just don't believe it was ever meant to work that way. Because Jesus is not that way. And see, there's always going to be a tension for you and for me if we view obedience as an obligation because it's meant to be an invitation. Obedience is not meant to be an obligation. It's meant to be an invitation into how life works best. I I think about the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. Famous words. He says, whoever hears my commands and does them is like a wise man who built his house upon the what? Rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. What does that sound like to you? Resilience. It's resilience. We hear the commands of Jesus. We put them into practice. We die to ourselves. We live for him. We find true life. We become resilient people with our houses built on the rock. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's an Old Testament reference. By the way, 1 Peter references the Old Testament more frequently than any other book in the New Testament except for Revelation. Just Old Testament's all over 1 Peter. Old Testament, Exodus 24. Moses is getting all the people together. God is confirming his covenant with Israel. Moses is is reading the words from God to the people, and the people are getting all excited, saying, yes, we are going to do everything that God says. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that didn't work out great. But before we judge them too harshly, come on. You've gotten excited and said things you couldn't follow through on too. So come on. But so they're getting all excited and they're yes we're gonna do what we say and Moses sends young men up to offer a burnt offering and a peace offering sacrificing an ox and then after they're done doing this they take some of the blood of the ox and they sprinkle it on on the altar and then Moses takes some of the rest of the blood of of the ox and they sprinkle it on the people and I hope everyone just went home and threw their clothes in the laundry after that but what's he doing it's a it's a way of confirming the covenant confirming the special relationship that God had with his people. See, we do not literally have the blood of Jesus sprinkled on us, but that's a common metaphor for the cleansing of sin when we come to faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. See, within the sacrificial system, I I, I said back then, an ox was sacrificed, right? Sin and death are transferred to the victim. And purity and life are given to those who receive the benefits of sacrifice. So so by declaring that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, Peter is saying Jesus has wiped away our sin through his life and his death and his resurrection. Why can you have resilient hope? Why can you have resilient hope? The confident expectation of future events. Because if your faith is in Christ, you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit lives inside you and is sanctifying you for obedience to Jesus Christ. You have been, your heart has been sprinkled by his, by his blood and you have been made clean. I don't know about you. I do not know of a better, more secure source of hope on planet Earth. Amen? Amen. You do not need to live with the fear and the insecurity that comes from personal autonomy. There is one who is good and kind and powerful and wise, and he is on your side. He is with you in the struggle. 
And he graciously invites you and me into a life of obedience. Now, we've made it through two verses. We've got 10 to go, and you are absolutely getting out of here on time. So we're going to pick up the pace. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, there's our word, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why has God called us to be born again? Because we are awesome. No. Because of his great mercy. It is not because you're awesome. It is certainly not because I am awesome, because I am not. But God is merciful. When you have your act together and life is going exactly as you planned, God is merciful towards you. When everything is falling apart, you don't know if you can face the day, you're disappointed in yourself, you failed to live up to your own values, God is merciful to you. God, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. God, God has mercy for you, right? And I want to point out something else here. He says, he uses the phrase, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that very statement that lied at the heart of so much of the tension that the recipients of this letters were feeling and were facing. Why? Because if Jesus is Lord, it means that Caesar isn't. And if Jesus is Lord, that means you're not going to worship the various Greek and Roman deities that had followers in these different colonies, right? And listen, we live in a world today where we don't often use the language of false gods, and we don't often use the language of false worship, but let's be very clear. Our world is flush with secular religions that are seeking a religious level of devotion from us. And I don't say that to be all fear-mongery. I say that because I want to be clear-eyed about the reality we are living in, right? False worship is everywhere, even if we don't use those words. And I believe it is just as countercultural today to say that Jesus is Lord and therefore these secular religions do not have that authority over me. It is just as radical to say Jesus is Lord today as it would have been back then. So you're born again to a living hope through Jesus, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember, Peter's recipients are suffering all sorts of social stigmas. Many had been branded by outcasts by their families, and they'd, they'd lost family over their faith in Jesus. And with that, they'd lost their familial inheritance. And Peter is saying, listen, I know you may have lost something because you followed Jesus, but what have you gained? You have gained an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's not something that's gathering dust in a, in a bank or a storage unit. It is kept in heaven for you. This is the best kind of inheritance you can imagine. It is imperishable, meaning it is free from death and decay. It is undefiled, meaning it is free from moral impurity. And it is unfading, meaning it is not subject to the ravages of time. Listen, I don't know who your granddaddy is, but he ain't leaving you an inheritance like that. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. See, resilient people know the hope of heaven and the inheritance that awaits us. 
But see, they don't give in to escapism where they just say, we're just biding our time now before we go to heaven. But because of the inheritance that awaits us, that motivates us to live fully present today, it helps us understand that eternal life, life in the kingdom of God, begins now because God is with us in the struggle and he infuses every moment, every interaction, every day at work, every hour engaging in recreation, every time in church, he, in, he infuses everything with meaning and significance. Verse six. In this, this hope, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is hope that is resilient in the face of trials. And, and think about it. What is a trial? A trial is a test of strength, isn't it? I think about it. When I think of trial, I, my mind goes to the pharmaceutical injury, or injury, industry, and you talk about clinical trials, right? What's a clinical trial? It's, it's a test of the medication to see does it have efficacy when subject to the rigors of actually trying to heal disease in a human body, right? It's testing its strength. Or, or I just, I don't know, I, over the years, I've watched all sorts of documentaries and movies about the space race from the 60s. And what did they do? They ran all sorts of trials to test if the rockets and the capsules and everything else could hold up to the rigors of a launch and, and exiting the atmosphere and everything else, right? All sorts of trials, because a trial tests something's strength, doesn't it? And Peter says that trials are very real. And he, and he says they are so severe that they may cause grief. I just, I look at this text and it's easy to kind of slide by the word, okay, well, grieved by various trials. Grief is not something we slide by, is it? Grief is serious. Grief is significant. Peter says you, you, might, you might be facing trials that are so severe they're causing grief. Remember, resilient people accept reality. There can be all this pressure sometimes, I feel like, in church world to, like, we're facing something really terrible and we're supposed to pretend that it's not that terrible. Like, no. Like, sometimes you just need to name it. Like, this is terrible. We accept reality. But look at the analogy that he uses. Trials refine us like heat refines gold. This is imagery found throughout the Old Testament. What happens when gold is subject to heat? The impurities rise to the surface so the goldsmith can scrape away the impurities. And what are you left with? A more pure piece of gold. And Peter says that trials can function in the same way. When we are resilient in clinging to our hope and clinging to our faith in the midst of trials and even in the midst of grief, it even purifies us and brings honor to our Lord. What else do resilient people do? They believe that life is meaningful. So we can at the same time, we don't have to choose between these two things. We can have a staunch acceptance of reality. I don't know what you're going through today, but some of us are going through things that are grievous, that are very difficult, and we can name them as such without the need to gloss over them. And then at the same time, we can say, but I believe that God is present and at work. I believe that God can redeem anything. And through this grievous trial, God can refine me to raise impurities to the surface and scrape them away so God can redeem even this. That is resilient hope in the face of trials. Amen. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the essence of Christian faith, isn't it? We we do not see Jesus physically. Peter had a time in his life when he, he did. He walked with Jesus for years and he even saw him when he had resurrected, right? But those that, the first recipients of this letter didn't have that experience. We haven't had that experience, right? But we have God's word. We, we read the stories. We believe in him. We, we, know, we, we know Jesus personally by, by reading his word and, and through prayer and through community. And we, we trust in his promises. We believe that what he said is true. And what does that give us? It gives us joy. Even, and I love this language, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And I, I love that for Peter, salvation is, is holistic. That for him, salvation means deliverance from earthly trials. But then it also means eternal salvation at the end when God makes all things new and we are reunited with him for eternity. Salvation of our souls. Let's continue. Concerning this salvation, verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, he, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This salvation, the suffering of Christ, of, of God's Messiah on our behalf, is, is the subject of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. Passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 come to mind. Peter is reminding his readers, as he reminds us today that we're part of a great tradition that began centuries ago with the Old Testament prophets, prophets who in some cases did not know the events about which they wrote. They searched and they inquired carefully. They wanted to know, when is this Christ going to come? Much like you and I living today, we we wonder, we want to know, when is Jesus going to return and make all things new? In the same manner, the prophets of old wanted to know, when is is God's Messiah going to come? And it says that the Spirit of God inspired their writings. But if you know your Bible, you know that the Old Testament prophets went to their graves with their prophecies as yet unfulfilled, right? They didn't get to see the fulfillment of these promises in their lifetime. It goes on. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It says God reveals, and by the way, if this last couple verses feel like kind of a hard left turn, it's because they are, but we're just gonna go with it. God revealed to Old Testament prophets that they weren't writing for themselves. They were writing for future generations and were a part of that. And the prophecies they wrote, again, were not fulfilled, most of them in their lifetime. But Peter is saying that that which the prophets predicted has come true in the person and work of Jesus. And these truths have now been shared with you, Peter is saying, by those who originally shared the gospel with them. He's like, do you understand the magnitude of the truth that you know? And then there's this odd phrase, things into which angels long 
to look. What the heck does that mean? I'm glad you asked. I want you to consider the circumstances, again, of this letter. And I know I keep referring to it, but it's important. They're essentially refugees living in a place that was not their home, living in a place where saying Jesus is Lord certainly did not bring any sort of benefit, but in many cases brought significant harm and significant challenges. They may have been cut off from family, subject to mocking or scorn from neighbors. Perhaps they even lost jobs or sources of income. They were quite literally grieved by various trials. Peter's not saying, well, if you face trials later on, here's what you do. He's saying, as you're facing grievous trials today. I mean, and no doubt, come on, these are human beings. No doubt their hope was waning. And Peter is saying this. He says, I know you don't feel privileged, but just consider the glorious truth that you know in your heart that Jesus, God's own son, the savior of the world, has come to planet earth, that he has come, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and his Holy Spirit lives in you. You have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. He says, listen, this is the message that the prophets longed to know about. This is the truth that even the angels didn't get to find out about before it happened. Even they wanted to know this, and it has been revealed to you. You are more privileged than you could ever imagine. And as we bring this to a close, I want to I bring it into this room. I want you to consider your own life. I want you to consider your own very real struggles and your own very real suffering. I want to think about everything that you are facing right now that makes you feel like you're not privileged. Everything you're facing in your life that is challenging and difficult and discouraging for you. You've got them, I've got them, we've all got them. And then consider the truth that you know. You are a child of God. You have been saved by the blood of God's own son. You know a truth that the forefathers of our faith, the authors of the divinely inspired word of God that we read every single weekend here at church, we, you know a truth that those individuals longed to know. You know the truth that the angels longed to know. You can know that your suffering, while significant, is temporary and your inheritance is sure. And so you can have hope. You can know that God is with you in the struggle, that God gives you strength for today and the brightest of hope for tomorrow. You can know that you have been called into a community of people that is the church. God calls a community together, not just individuals, and you can be a person of resilient hope because Jesus is alive and his Holy Spirit lives in you. Somebody in the house of God say amen this morning. We can be resilient because Jesus is alive and his Holy Spirit lives in us. So I want to invite the prayer team to come on up and if you are feeling a lack of hope this morning, you are not the only one in this room, I promise you that. 
I would love to invite you to come up for prayer after the service, and we got men and women who'd love to pray for you. If you are facing trials that are causing grief, you are not the only one, and we would love to be able to, to pray for you. If you've got something else going on that has nothing to do with anything we talked about, still, come on up. Don't leave here without getting prayer. You're in the house of God, and this is a place where men and women are hoping that you'll come and give them the privilege of praying for you. So let me pray just a blessing over us, and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. We thank you for the opportunity to study this book of 1 Peter. Thank you that you desire for us to be resilient people. And I pray over the course of these next nine weeks that we would be transformed by your spirit and by your word, that we would live with Holy Spirit-led optimism, realistic optimism to be resilient in the face of the struggles that are gonna come our way. God, we thank you that you are with us in the struggle. No matter what, you are with us in the struggle. So God, we open ourselves before you this morning to say, Holy Spirit, continue your sanctifying work in us. We, we, we open ourselves to you this morning to say whatever there is in us that thinks that personal autonomy is, is better than obedience to you, God, would you clear that away so that we might be enthusiastically responsive to your invitation to obedience. And God, ultimately, we want to be resilient people, not simply for our own benefit, but so that we can be a blessing and the best version of ourselves to our loved ones, to, to the community outside of this place that desperately needs the resilient hope that you offer. So we love you, God. Be glorified in us as we seek to become resilient people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen.